Hey, good morning, everyone. That's a little different. Some of you wanted to start singing, didn't you? In West Philadelphia. I'm just kidding. It's great to see you. Thank you for joining us for worship here at the Vista. Uh, this is my annual public service announcement. Uh, we have two other services. One's at 8.30, one's at 11.30. So if you don't want someone sitting in your lap on Sunday, uh, you might consider one of the other two. They're not quite as full as the 10 o'clock, uh, but we're really, really glad that you are here. Um, I know there are some sitting out watching Flat Dave on a screen out there. Thank you for sticking with us. Uh, again, 8.30 and 11.30 have a little bit more room. Um, so just, just throwing that out there for, you know, whatever it's worth. Uh, we're in the fourth week of our series um, entitled Long Live the Revolution. We are looking at the life of the church. If you um, have ever wondered, you know, how did, uh, how did Christianity get started? Um, how did the church get started? I mean, why do we gather every single week uh, as the church? Uh, why do we do what we do? Well, that is what the book of Acts is about. It is about the church. And so we are taking nine weeks, Austin and I, to walk through the book of Acts. Now, it's impossible to cover every single thing that happens in the book of Acts in nine weeks. And so we're having to sort of hit the highlights a little bit. Um, we've also provided for you a reading plan. If you uh, would like, we would encourage you to read along with us as we prepare each week to, to preach through Acts. We want you to be reading through the book of Acts with us. And so you can find that, um, you can text this number um, if you would like to get a reading plan sent to you. Or you can find that on our website. And again, read along, kind of filling in uh, those gaps, all right? Uh, this morning we find ourselves in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Acts chapter 6 and 7. So you can begin to turn there. Acts chapter 6 and 7. I'm going to give you a little bit of a fair warning. Also, I've been battling a little bit of a chest congestion cold cough thing. And so the options were to either try to suck on a lozenge while I preach. But I didn't think these fine people in the front row would like to, uh, you know, accidentally get that spit on them. Right, Steve? That would not be good. Um, so, or, bring, or bring the bottle of water up here. So if I start coughing uncontrollably in the middle of my sermon, just bear with me for a second. If I fall over and like pass out, just drag me off to the side and call Austin. Maybe he can finish the sermon for you, all right? Um, just, just wanted to give you a little bit of a heads up. This morning we're looking at the life of a man named Stephen. Um, when we talked about the highlights and what we wanted to cover in the book of Acts... Um, Stephen was someone I felt like we really need to talk about because Stephen really is uh, an important figure in the book of Acts. He's also uh, sort of a transitional figure in the book of Acts in a, in a lot of ways. And there's just some things about his life that I think we need to notice. I think we need to pay attention to and I think we need to emulate as followers of Jesus. He sets a great example for us as Christ followers. Um, so what happens here in the book of Acts to try to catch you up is the church has blown up. I mean, it really is a movement. It's a revolution, unlike uh, the world has ever seen. It starts with about 120 people gathered in a room. Um, and then Austin talked the last few weeks about how from there, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, and it all of a sudden becomes a megachurch, right? It blows up, right? Thousands of people are now following Jesus. So the disciples are trying to figure out how do we manage this logistically? What do we do with all the people? We got we to gotta get them connected in small groups. They're meeting in homes. And, and how's that going to work? How do we care for everyone's needs? How do we how do, we do this, right? Um, and that's kind of where we, where we pick up in, in chapter 6. It says in verse 1, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. Let me stop right there. I didn't get very far. When the disciples were increasing in number. I want to just kind of highlight this, that all of the believers are called disciples. 
in that verse, it's not talking about the 12, right? It's not talking about the 12 guys that follow Jesus and then there's everybody else. It's not saying there's like the super Christians over here and then all the other Christians over here. No, no. The book of Acts knows nothing about sort of nominal Christianity. It just doesn't, right? It doesn't know anything about that. Everyone that was a follower of Jesus, everyone that was a part of the church is called a disciple of Jesus. And so the disciples is referring to all of the church right there. All of the church. They're growing. The church is growing like crazy. It says that a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what's happening is they're growing so fast that there's a lot of people's needs aren't getting met. Some groups in the church are complaining that, like, you know, their needs aren't getting met quite as well as maybe some of these needs over here. And the apostles just can't, can't manage all of this. As we've grown as a church, we've, we've added service teams. We've added some staff. We've added elders. We've, we've done some things to help our growth. And the same thing's happening here in Acts. The church is growing, and the apostles cannot handle, they cannot manage all of it. And so here's what they decide to do, verse 2. It says, and the 12, they summoned the full number of, the, there it is again, the disciples. That's the whole church. They said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. We'll devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And so they chose Stephen, a man, of, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, the proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Well, it says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen is this unbelievable figure right here in Acts chapter 6. As the church was growing the persecution against the church was also ramping up. In Acts chapter 4, it says they seize Peter and John and they warn them. They give them a warning. They, give them a, they threaten them, if you will. They say, don't speak any longer in the name of Jesus. And of course, Peter and John respond by saying, we can't help but speak in the name of Jesus. But they just give them a warning in chapter 4. In chapter 5, it says they, they took the apostles and they beat them. They had them flogged. But then it says the disciples, the, the apostles, they, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer persecution for the name of Jesus. Like, that's a little different, isn't it? Just get beaten and you're like, yay, persecution, right? 
They rejoiced. They could be persecuted for the sake of Christ. And then it's escalating to the point here in chapter 6, they seize Stephen. And then in chapter 7, they're going to murder Stephen. The persecution from this point on. The reason I talk about Stephen being a transitional figure is it goes from threats and beatings to killing of, of Christians. And Stephen is the first one that is martyred for his faith. He stands as this unbelievable person in Acts chapter 7. Well, here's some things I want us to notice about Stephen. In the brief time we have together, some things I really want us to notice about his life. And the first thing that I think jumps off the page is that Stephen, Stephen was a man of good character. Stephen was a man of good character. You know, your character is who you are on the inside, right? You've heard that before. Your character is who you are on the inside. It's who you are when no one is looking. D.L. Moody said your character is who you are in the dark, right? It's not just who other people think you are. It's who you really are. And if you'll remember, Jesus, Jesus in, in the Gospels, he talked a lot about this idea that we should focus on the inside, right? You remember that? He talks to the Pharisees and he really blasts them and he calls them whitewashed tombs. You remember? Jesus called them whitewashed. If anyone ever calls you a whitewashed tomb, that is not a compliment, right? He says, here's the thing. On the outside, you look real pretty and neat and clean, but on the inside, you're dead. On the inside, you're full of dead man's bones, basically. You see, your character is who you are on the inside and it's so important that we pay attention to our character because who you are on the inside will ultimately reveal who you'll be and what you'll do on the outside. Your character is super important. Now look at the life of Stephen. What leaps off the page to me in chapter 6 about who he was in the few verses that we read together. He was full of faith. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of grace. He was full of power. He was full of wisdom. When they're looking for someone to serve, the first name they come up with is Stephen. The the phrasing used in in chapter 6 is that someone to wait tables. That's not a real glamorous job, right? In other words, they're not, they're not looking for someone to, to get on stage. Stephen was a man that was a servant. At the core of who he was, he was about serving people. He was about imitating the pattern that Jesus talked about to his disciples, about being the least of these, about washing feet. That is his character. That is who Stephen was. So when the church grows and there's all these needs that need to be met, the first name they think of is Stephen. It's Stephen. See, your character, who you are on the inside, it matters. Your character absolutely matters. John Wooden, who is the legendary uh, UCLA basketball coach, used to talk to his team about their character. One thing that he said is, be more concerned with your character than your reputation. Your character is who you really are. Your reputation is merely who others think you are. So many times we pay attention to the outside, right? We want people to think highly of us. We want the outside to look really pretty. We want to pretend maybe that we have everything together. Uh, But Jesus says, pay attention to who you are on the inside. Stephen is a great example to us of a man of good character, strong character. He's chosen as one of these servants. What happens basically is they, they arrest him. This is the Sanhedrin. This is the Jewish ruling council. They drum up some charges. They lie. They fabricate some things. They even get some people to give false witness. And they drag Stephen before the Sanhedrin. They accuse him of these things. And then um, in Acts chapter 7, verse 1, I I didn't give this to our our media guys back there, but verse 1, it says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? That's it. They ask him one question. It's a simple yes or no question. Stephen responds by preaching the longest sermon in the book of Acts. 
I like Stephen, right? I like Stephen. It's a simple yes or no question. Hey, are these things true? He's like, well, grab your copy of the Torah and let's go through it together, right? And that's what he does. All of chapter 7 is basically Stephen's sermon to the Sanhedrin. He walks through the Old Testament with them. He walks through their own history with them. He starts with Abraham, and he walks through the patriarchs, and then he talks about Moses and, and how God used Moses, and then he gets into the prophets, and he's literally walking through the Old Testament, their own history. And as you read through chapter 7, what you'll see is that throughout his sermon, there's really not much they would have disagreed with. I mean, I pictured them all sitting there listening to him and honestly kind of going, yeah, sounds good, amen, right? If only he had wrapped it up about verse 50. I mean, if he had wrapped it up at verse 50, he could have said, let's pray and be dismissed, and they probably would have let him go. Amen, sorry for the miscommunication, sorry for the confusion, right? But in 51, at the very end of his sermon, he just lets them have it, right? He just absolutely lets them have it. He's just kind of walked through their history, and he talked about Abraham and the patriarchs and Moses and the prophets, and then he gets to 51. And here's what he says. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your hearts and your ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels did not keep it. Mic drop, right? I mean, he just absolutely lets them have it there at the end of his sermon. The second thing I notice about Stephen as I read this is that Stephen was absolutely committed to the truth. Stephen was a man who was committed to truth. Again, he could have wrapped the sermon up, right? He could have wrapped it up a little early. Everyone gone home in a good mood, been, been probably released, let go, not a big deal. But he wouldn't have told him the truth. He wouldn't have told him the truth. And listen, Stephen saw the persecution that was coming, right? He knew about the threats and the warning in chapter 4. He knew about the beatings in chapter 5. He knew that he was in a room that didn't want to hear what he had to say, but he was willing to be committed to the truth despite the cost and despite the consequences. I think that's a huge lesson for us as a church to learn, right? To be absolutely committed to the truth in a world that says truth is relative, right? I mean, truth is whatever you want it to be. Your truth ain't my truth. Don't you tell me what my truth has to be. We also live in a world of lies. Satan is called the great deceiver. Satan loves to lie. Satan loves to deceive. He loves to tell us things like, hey, you're not good enough. You don't measure up. Your sin is too great. Man, if everybody sitting in here knew what you did, God can't use you. God can't forgive you. It's so important as the church that we know and are committed to the truth to withstand the lies and the deception of Satan. Stephen is a man that I look at and I see a man that's committed to truth. He knows what's coming. He sees the persecution, but he's absolutely committed to the truth. And so he tells him the truth. And then ultimately it cost him his life. It has to be examined more closely in its ancient context. And once we do that, we will begin to understand that Scripture actually does not say anything about committed, monogamous, same-sex relationships. Right? And the best place to unpack what he means here is probably Romans 1. So, as we mentioned earlier, in Romans 1, Paul condemns same-sex behavior because he said it's uh, paraphysin 
or contrary to nature. And affirming folks have come up with a couple of different interpretations to explain why here in Romans 1, Paul is not categorically rejecting all same-sex behavior, but only certain forms of same-sex behavior. And in order to understand this, okay, we have to take a, uh, a crash course on ancient sexuality. So are you ready for this? This is what you came to church today expecting, right? A crash course on ancient sexuality. So get ready for it to get nice and weird if it's not already. Um, so generally speaking, uh, the concepts of heterosexuality and homosexuality are very modern constructs that did not exist in the ancient world. And that's because ancient people did not classify you based upon who you were sexually attracted to. Okay? Because in the ancient world, and this is going to sound so strange to you, I know. But in the ancient world, it was fairly common for a man to like have sex with his wife slash wives, typically wives. Uh, but then to also have sex with a younger teenage boy. Uh, and it would have never occurred to anybody to ask whether the man who did that was gay or straight or bi. No one would have asked that question because that's not the way ancient people thought about sexuality. In the ancient world, it was thought that who you had sex with was basically just a matter of preference, what you felt like that day, not orientation, who you were attracted to on some gut level. Here's how Vines explains it. In ancient times, even if a man expressed exclusive interest in one gender, his peers would not have assumed he was incapable of being attracted to the other gender. So a man's exclusive interest in the same sex would have been viewed as a different choice based upon different preferences. It would not have been seen as pointing to a different sexual orientation. Okay, so that's the first thing we have to understand about ancient sexuality. Uh, who you had sex with was a matter of preference, not orientation, and it was common for people to have sex with both sexes. Okay, I know some of you are like, oh my God, it's, just, it's the ancient world. And then the second thing we need to understand about sexuality in the ancient world is that same-sex behavior was often thought to be the result of excessive lust. Okay, I think we've got a slide somewhere that says that. Same-sex behavior in the ancient world was thought to be the result of excessive lust. So in other words, people who engaged in same-sex behavior in the ancient world, they were not thought of as gay. Again, there wasn't even a category for gay. Nobody was gay. They didn't think like that. Rather, people who uh, participated in same-sex behavior were just thought of as like really lustful people because they thought that lust tended to express itself in same-sex behavior. <clears throat> and here's one that's really important when it comes to Romans 1. If Paul was an ancient person, which Paul quite obviously was, who didn't understand that people could be born with a gay orientation, and if Paul instead believed that same-sex behavior was the result of excessive lust, then what Paul is really condemning in Romans 1 is sexual excess, not same-sex behavior. Okay, here's how Vines explains it. He says, Paul was not condemning the expression of a same-sex orientation. He was condemning sexual excess as opposed to sexual moderation. And same-sex behavior condemned as excess doesn't translate to homosexuality condemned as an orientation or as a loving expression of that orientation. And I know that's like a really complicated idea as a modern person to wrap your brain around the first time you hear it. So that's why I would encourage you to do your own homework, sort through it, and you'll eventually understand the point that he's making. It's a fair point to make. And to be clear, Vines is not saying that Paul's just flat wrong. Paul was wrong on this. No. 
what he's saying is that what Paul is condemning in Romans 1 is not committed monogamous homosexual relationships that are an expression of a gay orientation because as an ancient person, Paul was not even capable of thinking that thought, much less giving those instructions because Paul did not have the mental software to think like that. And there's plenty more that could be said here, uh, but the most important thing has already been said because it helps us understand the general way in which an affirming view tries to honor the authority of Scripture but still honor the holiness of same-sex relationships. The big idea is that when Scripture prohibits homosexuality, which it clearly does, it is not prohibiting monogamous, committed gay relationships that are an expression of a gay orientation, but rather it is condemning things like excessive lust or abusive forms of homosexuality. So things like pederasty, an older man having sex with a teenage boy, which was the most common form of same-sex behavior in the ancient world. And as I hope you can tell, um, it is a fairly complicated issue. And that's why you need to do your homework on this. And I'd like to begin by sharing a little bit of the journey that I've been on as I've tried to process this whole issue and do it honestly, faithfully, and biblically. Um, like most of you, I, I grew up with the traditional view on this and never really did any homework on it because I was just so sure I was right. You know? But that all changed for me when... Um, this student I mentioned reached out to me and he asked me to help him discern what he should do and I realized that I was an unreliable guide because I had not done my homework on this. I had opinions, but my opinions far outpaced the homework I had done. And so I said, well, man, let's do this. Um, let's go on a journey together where, where we read a book, the best book we can find from the traditional perspective. And then we read the best book we can find from the affirming perspective. We read God and the Gay Christian by Matthew Vines. And then we just be honest with each other about what we find, about what's persuasive, about what's not persuasive. And it was a very, very humbling journey for me, a year-long journey. Because it's really difficult to crawl back into Paul's first century mind to understand what this first century Jewish man thought about, you know, sexuality and orientation. And thus it's very difficult to understand exactly what Paul means when he speaks against same-sex behavior, which he clearly does. So it's possible, it's absolutely possible that Paul only had in mind abusive forms of homosexuality. And it's possible that uh, Paul's failure to understand orientation led to his condemnation of homosexuality. And it's possible that if Paul were to live today, he would affirm the holiness of same-sex relationships. That's all possible. I've got to be honest with you enough to say that it's possible. It is possible. But I don't think it's probable. I don't. Because while it's true that uh, it was somewhat uncommon, there were examples of committed monogamous same-sex relationships in the ancient world. It wasn't a foreign concept. It wasn't all abusive. And while it's, it's true that, that the ancient world did not have the modern concept of orientation that we now have, it's not really accurate to say that there was no concept of orientation in the ancient world because plenty of ancient thinkers thought you could be born attracted to people of the same sex. And most importantly, in my opinion... Uh, scripture primarily prohibits homosexual behavior because it's contrary to God's design for gender, not because it's abusive or excessively lustful. Okay, now this is very, very important. Was most same-sex behavior in the ancient world abusive? By modern standards, absolutely it was, okay? But when Scripture prohibits same-sex behavior, the rationale is not that it's wrong because it was abusive or lustful. 
the rationale is that it's wrong because it violates God's fundamental design for human sexuality. Right? And so that's, that's where I landed. Even though I still do my homework on this. I read a couple books a year on this. Because I'll always have homework to do on this. I'll be doing homework on this until the day I die. But I, and I speaking here for our VISTA leadership, we, we think that the traditional view... Little quip, and he's like, oh, so the Messiah is this man named Jesus from Nazareth. Yeah, right. Everybody knows ain't nothing good ever come out of Nazareth. And so Nathaniel, you know, uh, he's looking for an argument. You ever been around someone who you knew was looking for an argument? Yeah. He's looking for an argument. And Philip, bless his heart, is a much more mature man than I would have been. Uh, Because instead of taking the bait on the argument, Philip just says, well, you know what? How about you just come and see Jesus for yourself, then you make up your own mind. Just just come with me, and you can just meet Jesus, and then you decide for yourself. And over the years, I've seen so many different, you know, techniques for evangelism. Uh, And most of those techniques tend to boil down to four basic methods. And here I'm pulling from a group called the Gravity Leadership Group. They do great work. Now, the first method of evangelism is what I like to call not doing evangelism. And it's a very bold strategy. We'll see how it works out. Uh, Early returns are not looking good. And it is the option that a lot of us choose to take. Uh, For example, a study was released last year, uh, and it found that 80% of us have not shared our faith at all in the last year. 80%. Same study found that 50% of us have never, ever, ever invited a single person to church. I know we look around sometimes like, man, our church has really grown fast. It's not grown as fast as our community is. And this is what God's doing with half of us, never inviting a single person over a whole lifetime. It's humbling. So that's the first method, not doing any. And the second method of evangelism is what we might call coercive evangelism. Coercive evangelism. And it's the sort of, you know, argument. Man, their college is expensive, and it's like, why don't you stop trying to one-up me by your stage of life? Like... Parenting is hard, right? At every age, it's hard, but it's worth it. It's worth the sacrifice. It's worth the work. Listen, following Jesus, following Jesus is sometimes hard. Being a person of character is doesn't tell people anything about Jesus. Coercive evangelism tells people lies about Jesus. And you don't want to lie about Jesus. It tells people Jesus is a psychotic, manipulative bully. It's so easy to get sidetracked. You know, we're in election year. I talked to some pastors just a few weeks ago, and he, he was like, man, my church is like a tinderbox, man. It's like every little political statement becomes an argument and a fight. And I'm like, you know, I, I just don't see that here, and I'm grateful for that. Maybe I'm just missing it, and y'all are really good at hiding it, right? But I just, like, we've got people in the parking lot that have, like, Trump 2020 bumper stickers right next to someone that's, like, a never-Trumper, okay? You know why? Because at the end of the day, our unity is not in that stuff. Our unity is in Christ, our unity's in Jesus, right? So we don't want to be concerned with chasing all these. Listen, it's so easy to, to just get sidetracked and, and, and to start, start looking at other things. And one of my goals, I think one of our goals, I can speak for our elders and all of our leadership on this, from the very beginning of our church 15 years ago, we want to be a child. By osmosis, they'll magically become Christians. And this method is uh, very common among us. I do this all the time. Uh, who really do want to share our faith, and we know we've been called to. 
but, but we've been so burned by the nasty ways of doing it that we go, man, you know what, I'm just going to be really, really nice and never really mention Jesus and just hope that like something, my magical powers, my niceness powers, just transform them into followers of Jesus, okay? That's what a lot of us do. And then the fourth method, you know enough to know. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We want to give you a moment to respond, as we always do at the end of our services. Jordan and the band are going to lead us in a song of worship. Maybe you want to spend some time where you are with the Lord. Maybe in prayer and confession and repentance. I want to give you some time to do that. Maybe you want to stand, sing, worship, celebrate. Maybe you want to take communion, where you remember the body and the blood of Christ, broken and shed for you. You're welcome to make your way to one of our communion stations. They're all around the, the, the auditorium. If you'd like to do that, take a piece of the bread. It represents the body of Christ broken for you. You can dip that in the juice that represents the blood of Christ that was shed for you. Remember that Jesus is our great high priest that has done everything necessary for our salvation. There's no work left to be done except to place your faith in him and him alone. Maybe you want to talk or pray with someone. There'll be someone back there right in front of the sound booth. You're welcome to go back there and They'll be happy to talk with you, pray with you about anything you want to talk or pray about. But however you want to respond, we want to invite you to do that. Thank you guys for being here this morning.